Welcome to Securing Justice, a podcast series created by the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, at Cal Poly Pomona, and generously supported by California Humanities. This is the second episode in our series, which focuses on housing and security in California. My name is Brady Collins, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Cal Poly Pomona and Faculty Fellow with CCEP. In this episode, we share with you a second panel discussion hosted by CCEP titled Representations of Place, Home, and Insecurity. For this conversation, we invited three creatives, a filmmaker, a visual artist, and a theater maker, whose creative work somehow examines these themes in Southern California. The impact of art and artists on the city is a widely studied topic and something that any urban resident has probably seen or felt in their day-to-day lives. For this reason, I think listeners outside of California will still find this conversation relevant to their own experiences. I'm particularly excited about this one because the conversation goes in a lot of different places, from the role artists play in the process of gentrification to the ways in which art can illuminate the stories of places and people that are often marginalized or overlooked. A quick note, due to COVID-19, these panels were held remotely via Zoom. As a result, you may at times hear the panelists refer to visuals they are presenting to the audience through Zoom's screen share function. If you're interested, the video recordings of these discussions are available at CCEP's website, which is posted in the show notes. We ask that if you like what you hear, if you care about these issues, please share our podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Securing Justice, a housing and security podcast series brought to you by the California Center for Ethics and Policy in the College of Letters, Arts and Social Sciences at Cal Poly Pomona. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. So please visit calhum.org. Please note that any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed during today's event do not necessarily represent those of California Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. My name is Alex Madba, and as director of the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, and on behalf of the CCEP faculty fellows co-organizing Security Justice, who are Brady Collins, Corey Aragon, and Michael Wu, we are pleased to bring you a panel discussion, Representations of Place, Home, and Security. Los Angeles is home to the largest concentration of unsheltered and unhoused individuals in the country. And in 2020, the situation grew considerably worse. More than half of those that are unhoused are experiencing houselessness for the first time. And we are seeing spikes in unhoused youth and families. That the majority of these individuals did not migrate here from other states or cities, but rather are from Los Angeles County, highlights the tension in the relationship between home and shelter and between place and belonging. This panel brings together artists working in a variety of formats, film, performance, and visual arts, to discuss how their work interrogates this tension through their interactions with the Los Angeles cityscape and its residents. Panelists will discuss how creative practices can challenge social and political structures and how they use representation and narrative to contribute to the discourse on housing insecurity. We have uh, three esteemed panelists today, and you can learn more about them, uh, each of them in the links that I'm pasting in the chat now. First, uh, Marika Splint is a Dutch-French-Tunisian theater maker based in Los Angeles and specializing in creating work in public space, exploring the relationship between people, place, and identity. She serves on the faculty of the Department of Theater at UCLA and is currently developing a new performance, The Biography of a Home, about the history of the housing crisis in Los Angeles, seen through the lens of one address, the century-old home that she currently lives in. Alvaro D. Marquez is a multidisciplinary artist, educator, and researcher who works primarily with printmaking, installation, and sculpture. Their work explores historical and contemporary forms of displacement with special attention to questions around the privatization of land as a commodity and the effects this has on racial geographies and the natural environment. Jeremiah Hammerling is an Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker who explores intimate personal stories that shed light on larger issues that affect us all. His work has been featured on CNN, CBS, Vice, PBS, ESPN, and Al Jazeera. Today's panel will be moderated by Rennie Tang, who is Associate Professor of Landscape Architecture at Cal Poly Pomona and coordinator of the first year undergraduate landscape 
Design Studio. Her practice-based research includes the investigation of choreographic tools and human movement analysis as methods for landscape, urban, and architectural design. On that note, I'd like to hand the virtual mic over to Dr. Tang. Thank you, Alex. And thank you to Corwin, Brady, and, and Michael as well for the invitation and opportunity to have a conversation with these amazing artists today. Before we get started, I would like to let the audience know that there will be a question period at the end, but as we go along, if you have questions, please feel free to type them in the chat as they pop into your head. We will address them either during the conversation or at the end. So let's get started. Jeremiah, Marike, and Alvaro, you are all storytellers, but you will all go about your storytelling in very different ways, using different sets of artistic tools. Before I dive into the topic at hand, I'd like to ask each of you to share with the audience a bit about the medium or artistic mode within which you work. For Marike, it's public theater. For Alvaro, it's visual art. And for Jeremiah, it's film. I say this knowing that categorizing your work within this singular disciplinary framework does not do justice to the richness of what you do, but I thought we could use this as a starting point for our conversation. And if you have some visuals to share, feel free to share your screen. I don't know who wants to start. Jeremiah, you turned on your oh, I, mic, so. I, I volunteered by, un by unmuting. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. And um, thank you to, to everybody for putting this together, um, for taking the time out of your day to, to meet up on this Wednesday midday. I also wanted to extend my apologies. Rita, my wife and, and partner who I work with often is also a documentary filmmaker and who also co-produced uh, City Rising, which is the piece that we will probably talk most about, at least from our angle today, uh, is unable to be here. Uh, she was on another job today, unfortunately, so there's a conflict of interest. But um, one, one of the things that... Uh, I focus on and that Rita focuses on as well in, in documentary film are people's stories. Uh, and so at a very basic level, that's kind of our entry point into whatever film we're working on. And um, we like to think about documentary as uh, there's a lot of different types of films and we'll get into this later, I'm sure. But for, for me personally, the, the types of films that I like to make uh, are essentially intimate ones that come from a personal place that allow people to access the larger issue from from that personal space. And so I like to think of documentary in, in broad strokes as sort of a way of using curiosity to engage with the larger world. And so we come at um, the medium, I think, is sometimes open to people wanting to have something that they want to say, and then they want to prove that thesis. I, that's one way of approaching documentary film. I, I tend to kind of think of it more as something that um, starts with a, with a question. And I don't typically like to answer that question. I, I like to muddy the water so much that the questions keep coming. And um, that by the end of whatever it is you're watching, that that becomes the place from which we want to start a discussion or maybe ask more questions. So that's sometimes a frustrating place for people to, to think about documentary film. I'm sure not everyone agrees with me and a lot of people might make different types of films. But I find that that's the most satisfying place to start. And, um, and I think it's the easiest place to begin uh, just by admitting what we don't know and by asking those questions and seeing where they take us. So I think that's a simple way to start, maybe too simple, but we can kind of go from there and, uh, and dive in in more detail. Thank you, Jeremiah. Marike, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, yes, and I also want to uh, thank you for having me today and for uh, making this interdisciplinary conversation possible. So I'm a theater maker who mostly creates work in public space, and I very consciously choose not to work in conventional venues because for me, the experience of uh, experiencing a performance in a place where you're also a citizen and there's sort of not that boundary of I'm entering an art space, but it's actually the place that, you know, you could be running 
to to the train or uh, maybe spending a Sunday afternoon um, is very important because I, I sort of want to blend the, the reality of the real world and the experience that uh, people are having. I have uh, some pictures that I can show. Uh, I work a lot with sound in public space because I don't really intervene. Uh, I see the, what is happening on the street or in the side that I'm working as sort of a documentary reality that, that I create a structure around and I take the audience as the center point. So I usually do not work with actors, but I create a text and a soundscape that uh, guides the audience's perspective through a place that they would normally walk through uh, to run an errand or um, on their daily commute. So this is in downtown uh, San Diego. This is in uh, Union Station in LA. I created a sound walk in a produce market in, um, in Tbilisi, and this is sort of the, the bar space. Um, I was part of a project with Rimini Protocol where people sit in the back of a truck and one side um, has been made into a window and they drive through the city, um, in this case, uh, Dortmund, stopping at, um, at different sides and hearing a soundscape designed for, um, for these sites. And in uh, the last few months during the pandemic, I created a work called You Are Here, uh, which I performed from my home, which takes place in Google Earth. So the site is actually the virtual map of Google Earth. I also consider the place or the internet a place that represents our society and that has like certain politics to it. So I walk, uh, I take the audience on a, on a road trip uh, through the virtual map of uh, Google Earth. And I choose to set these performances um, in these places because they they kind of ask the audience to reflect on how they would normally go go about them. Thank you, Marike. Alvaro? Yeah, well, just like everybody else, I want to thank uh, you for the invitation and for, join and for allowing me to join the conversation. Um, as Alex said in the introduction, I'm, um, I'm a research-based artist. So uh, much like Jeremiah, a lot of my work starts with questions. Um, and I do a lot of archival research to guide me in that direction. And sometimes, oftentimes it takes me in directions that I wasn't really expecting, which I think is part of the interesting part of, for me of my practice is I don't go in with a set vision of what an art object should look like. I start with questions and I do archival research and readings and I see where that takes me. I'm going to share my screen really quickly. Um, I have a few images of some recent work. Uh, this is uh, an installation that I did at Self-Help Graphics and Art called uh, Geometries of Displacement. And in this piece, I'm really thinking about the long history of displacement in what we now call Los Angeles. I moved to Los Angeles in 2008 for grad school, and I saw the gentrification of Highland Park really firsthand, uh, and I felt really complicit in that process. So that started me on a process uh, of understanding what is the history of displacement as a modality of capitalist development. And in this installation, I use traditional printmaking and archival maps to make these transtemporal links. The very first map you see here is actually a map from 1769 of the Portola expedition, which depicted the Tongva peoples uh, in what we now call the Los Angeles Basin. And for me, it's really important to situate displacement in this long-term context, because in order to understand gentrification or even something like redlining, I think it's really important to understand that these processes began with the displacement of indigenous peoples. And so the, the context of displacement in this city has a really long history. And in this piece, I start with these archival maps, such as this one from 1769, and I work through time uh, here's a map from the 1850s showing the what I envision as the, the initial privatization of land, right? And it begins this relationship to the natural environment, which has led to the Anthropocene, but which also begins with uh, implanting these ideas of land as private property, which I think, to me, lies at the root of these issues of housing insecurity. Uh, you know, we treat land like a commodity that can be traded for profit and for gain. And so what comes out of this? And I also incorporated this map from 1929. That's a homeowner's loan corporation map of redlining in Los Angeles. 
again, to show how these this relationship to the land that we have creates racialized geographies. And I move through time. I use this map here in the installation from the urban, I think it's the Urban Displacement Project. And it shows gentrification patterns in LA from 1990 to 2015. So I'm trying to make these linkages across time to demonstrate that displacement is not something new. It's actually a modality in, in sort of Western development and of the, the residues of colonialism. And in this most recent piece that I did with self-help graphics, I was invited to do a piece that thought about the census count. And I wanted to think about sort of this, this paradoxical relationship about the invisibility of unhoused people, but the hypervisibility of the objects they use to survive harsh environments. Here's a little detail shot. And for me, you know, again, this history goes back to the arrival of the Spanish, uh, in my understanding as a historian. And so this is how I approach my work as an artist. I really try to think about creating artwork that is not just about making a beautiful object, but which serves as a, so a sort of social inquiry. For me, artists are, are also producing knowledge, but it just operates in a modality that is not necessarily uh, legible if we think of the written word as a primary source of information. Thank you, well, all of you. That was um, really, really great to get a window into everything you do. And Alvaro, I appreciate all of those maps. I think that's a perfect segue into actually diving into the topic uh, because you've already done that. So home, uh, housing insecurity, maybe more broadly, home, place, and identity is uh, the topic where uh, we'd like to explore today. I would like to hear each of your thoughts on the role of the artist as a conduit between these issues and the broader public. More specifically, can you each reflect upon how your work calls attention to critical issues like housing insecurity and might offer new forms of communication? And uh, Alvaro, you, you started to, to talk about that. Maybe, maybe you'd like to just continue? Sure. Um, I mean, like I said, I think for me, art has the capacity to communicate with people. Uh, you know, I come from a very working class immigrant background. My father finished the fifth grade uh, back in Mexico. And so as an artist, I really try to think of how can, how can I use the skill set that I have to communicate information in a way that is not reliant on the written word. That's sort of my investment in visual art. And for me, it has a, this capacity to, to reach at the affective center of these issues, right? Uh, it evokes emotions, it evokes feelings. And in my work, I try to implicate us in this settler colonial project. You know, it's, it's, I'm implicating myself as much as the viewer. So I think that art has this capacity to do things that I think exceed the capacity of, a, a, of say, a scholarly article, not to bash on a scholarly article, I think, it serves an important role, but I think that there's there's other modalities of, of communicating that information, which can be just as effective in different registers. I'll, I'll piggyback on that for one second. Um, I think, by the way, those but the visuals that you, you both um, just showed us were all really fascinating, I, I think. Uh, in my mind, I'm like, ooh, that could be cool to film in this way. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll throw this in here. I don't want to do a screen share, but I will, uh, in, just in case people want to know, uh, the one documentary that we worked on, which was the first episode of City Rising, uh, which is a, deals specifically with gentrification and displacement, I will include in the, the chat. So if anybody wants to, they can check that out. There's the, That first episode now is a couple years old. The series is ongoing. Um, but piggybacking on what Alvaro was saying, I think from my perspective, uh, you know, when we talk about um, these issues and how, what art's role is in them, uh, I think there are so many different ways that we can dive into that. I start, so if I was going to start thinking more broadly, I think art Art's role kind of in the place, sort of if we want to talk about this sort of intersectionality between, let's say, the commons and kind of the privatization of that public space, I think we're, we're always talking about a degree of attention, um, what's grabbing, um, and obviously you put, you put too much money in that and that becomes marketing. Uh, if you put uh, a certain amount of um, 
authority on it and and it, all of a sudden the the power structure becomes a kind of a dynamic that's intrinsic to that the way that we're looking at that space i think you're always going to be talking about uh holding up a mirror uh, there's always going to be some sort of emotion that we're talking about uh, which would hopefully relate to the the current circumstance that we're we're looking at and ultimately what we would want to point towards right is some sort of level of transformation is that if the world that we want to see isn't isn't fundamentally there then we well, how can we do something about that at the risk of taking a small jump uh, into a historical precedent I, I think of when I when I was growing up um, when I was going to college specifically I, I studied a little bit on my own about the situationist international and the kind of the French movement uh, from the 60s which uh, maybe you've heard of a term called detournement um, and and this fundamentally gets at the idea of it's kind of a precursor for graffiti in a way and basically these guys were these people were lamenting the idea that the public space was no longer public, that everything was being hyper-privatized, that uh, we didn't really have a, a way to kind of, to sort of say what we felt and, you know, and, um, and engage in a meaningful conversation with our art. And one way of viewing that was, right, we're not going to wait for it. We're going to take it over. And detournment became about repurposing messages that were kind of in the public-private space. Uh, which in ways that we might now think of as graffiti. Um, so there's extremes, right? There's there's what's allowed and there's what's not allowed. And then there's this kind of legal precedent for what kind of takes place in the middle. But I think always uh, when we talk about the role of art in kind of this public space, I think it's, it is, it's hard to to talk about it without talking about the people who live in those spaces. And um, so, I mean, maybe that's a kind of a, a wide uh, open way of looking at it. But, uh, but I do think that like in a lot of ways the, the types of images that we're using uh, are, are going to reflect what our values are and what, are, what we bring into that environment, if that makes sense. So that would be like kind of broadly one weird amorphous way of looking at it. And I bring up graffiti only uh, because I think you know, there's different, again, legal implications aside, there's this, there's this way of engaging with an urban environment that uh, doesn't always ask for permission, but is every bit as arresting. And um, that can also be, you know, transform itself into a, a sort of completely legal precedent, which is just say like printmaking or um, art that can be then redistributed and, and put out into the public sphere. But I think we're always looking at kind of what is this question about what are our values and how do we see ourselves ultimately? It would be like one big way of thinking about it. Yes, I think that you both have said things that are very valuable. I also think that, you know, that there's not one role that the arts can play. I think there's many uh, ways to go about it. I, I feel that the two ways in which I'm dealing with it, I feel if I work in public space, what I'm really playing with is the perspective, the gaze literally of the audience members. Uh, I'm thinking of like, how can I direct the way that I look like as a camera, because we all develop certain ways of moving around public space, we develop just habits and routines for ourselves. There are things that we ignore, there are things that we notice, and that's fine, that is human. Uh, we all do that, but when I create an experience in public space, I am actively trying to rewire and recategorize how you observe, what you observe, how fast or how slow you move through a space in order to sort of come to new observations. The other way that I would talk about it is that I feel that um, performance, but maybe art in general, is it's a place where where things are real and not real at the same time, and in and in that way, I think it's sort of a, a lab for society and also a space to explore alternatives. And so that's also how how I look at my work. It's like how can we create or rehearse or test ideas, you know, in 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 a space that you know, you can create rules that don't necessarily align with how society is currently operating. And so this, this space of potential, I think, is very important for me in thinking about these issues, the, the creating a space for 
for potential futures or potential alternative realities. Yeah, I, I would echo that. Uh, I think that that's really a powerful statement, right? It's about imagining uh, alternative possibilities, right? And I think, um, I think that for me, especially in my practice now, I've done a lot of work on the past, but I'm inter interested more in sort of envisioning radical futures now. Uh, because I think like Marika said, there's art has this potential to make rules that do not exist now, but it can help us imagine a liberatory future. I also want to like go back what you said, Alvaro, about a sense of guilt, uh, like, you know, like not in my practice, but as an artist person uh, of living in certain places. Like I, before I lived in LA, I lived in Amsterdam and um, Amsterdam also has a housing crisis. It does not, it does not have as, you know, the, the, uh, as many unhoused people as LA has, but uh, housing is is very expensive, very hard to find. Uh, and um, I've never had an actual, like permanent lease in 10 years of living there. And uh, one of the places, that, the place that I lived in before moving to LA was uh, a neighborhood where the social housing corporations that were offering housing for very cheap to people, they were slowly, evicting tenants for renovation and before but before they could start a renovation they had to fill those houses you cannot have vacancy in Amsterdam so I was looking for housing and I had the possibility to live there um, for like 300 euros a month and I lived there for um, about four years and um, it was the only housing I could get and could afford I could be kicked out at any moment because they might renovate uh, so, um, but I was also, as an artist, very consciously used as a pawn of, you know, a sort of, you know, sort of gentrifying, yeah, gentrifying the neighborhood. You put artists there and if they want to live there, the rest will, will follow. So there is sort of this tension of like, this was the only housing that I could find or afford, but then also you become part of a, of a larger system. Uh, uh, of displacement and how do you deal with that? Absolutely, I appreciate you making that connection because I know in the work that I do with self-help graphics, you know, Bowl Heights is a community which is facing a lot of pressure uh, to redevelopment. And there's been a lot of uh, pushback against what they call art washing, right? Where the galleries come in, the artists come in. And I see these memes, I, I really love meme culture. There's a, there's a meme that I saw circulating that as soon as you see an artist with a funky haircut in your neighborhood, you know rent is gonna go up. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. And I know for myself, in my experience in Highland Park, when I moved to Highland Park, it was a predominantly Latinx community. And I saw in a matter of three or four years that I was living there, how my next door neighbor, who was a single mother with four kids got pushed out and a, and, a, and a white working, uh, you know, white collar uh, family moved in next door. They revamped the whole property. And all of a sudden the neighborhood shops disappeared. The mom and pop stores that were run by the Latinx community members were gone. And now you have shops that sell $5 donuts, which are obviously, that's not, you know, that, that's, not the, that's not meant for the working class community. So I think that it's really important as artists to understand our implication in these processes. And I, I mean, I definitely felt guilt, uh, but then I myself was then priced out of a Highland Park because I don't have a high income. So it becomes really complicated, uh, but I appreciate you making that connection because I think it is a phenomenon that exists outside of just the US. I appreciate both of you sharing those, your, your personal stories. It's, it's quite clear to me that your own lives and how you've experienced cities makes its way very quite directly into your art. I think this might be a good time, Marika, to share your project, Biography of a Home, which is a very current project that is about something, a personal experience. Um, yes, I'm currently working, I'm in the research phase of a project, Biography of a Home, and uh, that basically emerged from having to fight for our own housing uh, with my uh, with my neighbors. I live in a duplex and there's a back unit. So there's there's three units total. When I moved in here five years ago, the home was owned by a speculation company in Georgia. A year 
or so later on, they sold it to a landlord who's also a construction developer who bought it with the intention to um, demolish the back unit and build new units. And I had no idea about like what our rights were as uh, as tenants. And um, uh, I then began looking into it. I found out that I didn't have, they were saying to my to my um, uh, neighbor in the back, they were like, we have permits to demolish it. They didn't have it. They sent in fake lawyers. Like I literally saw people putting on blazers and make fake lawyer cards. Like I couldn't find them in like the, the uh, what is it, the Bar Association of California. And they were like, you know, we're giving you this buyout offer. And so that's how I became actively involved. Um, I found a lot of support through the LA Tenants Union uh, who helped us through this uh, harassment. And, you know, then is, it became clear to me that this is happening all over the town, that people are being forced out of their houses, that there are so many illegal evictions, there's illegal rent increases, and that there's this tension between, you know, what is home for a tenant uh, and uh, what is a financial asset for some for someone else. And that is what I'm exploring in the, in the biography of a home. So I when it when this happened to us, I was like, how often has this happened with this house and what is the history of this house? And then I started researching who has lived here in the past hundred years. So I basically made a list of uh, all the inhabitants, but also on uh, on the block, actually the inner city art center used to be on the block where I lived and that is not here anymore. Um, it's sort of a, an apartment complex. There is like nothing that remembers the, the rich history of that cultural uh, institution anymore. And um, and I did I did a lot of archival research into how this house came to be, who has lived here. I found advertisements uh, that the house was for rent from 1916. Um, but I also spent a lot of time looking at newspapers from like the late uh, 19th century. And um, going back to something that was mentioned before, like real estate speculation is basically in the DNA of this city, sort of the, the promise of being able to, you know, to purchase a property is like, that's what LA was, was built on. Like there was nothing here, uh, or there was a small indigenous village here, but people on the East coast were told that, you know, you could live here, like you could live in, in Spain. And so this, you know, sort of this real estate promise is at, at the heart or at the core of LA as we know it now, and it hasn't stopped. Like if you look at newspapers from the 1890s, like there's basically two kinds of articles. Like there's uh, shootings and who bought what, which lot for how much money. Like that's basically that all that is reported. And so it's sort of, it's in a way how the city has constantly perpetuated themselves. And my project is, is looking at like through this lens of the one house that I live in, how that basically has manifested in different ways throughout the course of over a century. I find that fascinating that your research began with just a single house, but then it, through that digging into the history, it led to um, so many larger revelations about Los Angeles. Maybe we could jump to Jeremiah on, on that note. You have dealt with eviction in some of your films, I understand. Yeah. So just to give a, a brief background, one of the things we were tasked with doing when we came on to do City Rising was we were tasked with looking at gentrification and displacement pretty broadly from six different places across, largely across Southern California, but partially also in East, East Oakland and Sacramento. But the rest was in uh, Santa Ana, Sacramento, Boyle Heights as well, and South Central and then Long Beach. So the series and the there was a it was broken up into episodes and was also released as a one hour documentary deals with those issues from a variety of perspectives. Um, it it's looking at it from the role of city planners, uh, developers, from activists, from uh, housing activists, from people from land trust perspective, um, from people that are working specifically with affordable housing. 
for, and then all the way down to people who are just housing burdened um, and people that were susceptible to, and then ultimately in certain cases being kicked out of their homes. One thing I didn't realize over the course of making the film was that uh, somebody had told us that if you spend more than a third of your income uh, on your house or on, on rent, that you're housing burdened. And I was like, oh, snap, we are, we're housing burdened. Like I had no clue that we fell into that category too. And uh, I mean, it, you know, there were, there were a million things that we learned because we obviously were, the, the, the film also deals with what you would call experts. So more, a more traditional kind of talking head approach to some of the data and uh, the California endowment was a big part of that. Um, so one of the things that shocked me that I'll, I'll regurgitate back to you now was uh, came from a guy named Anthony Iton. I-T-O-N, if I'm saying his last name right, uh, who he told us very early when we went to interview him because we were we the, the beginning of the film deals with racial covenants. So we also use the same map that um, Alvaro showed us in the very beginning of Los Angeles. And he, he, he said something that stuck with me. He said, you know, tell me your zip code and I'll tell you how long you have to live. And I kind of thought that this was like a dramatic thing to say, you know, which it is, but it was completely serious. And uh, you start to look at these racial covenants and you start to look at uh, how areas were redlined and in some cases yeah then you're broken up into like cuts of beef as as he put it into red and yellow and green areas which were considered more or less desirable many of you are probably familiar with this because we're already here so i won't uh, i won't go into the details there but what what's what surprised me was that those areas that had been categorically and racially divested in had a, com a complete a parallel way of looking at uh, mortality rates. And they were not insignificant. They were about 10 to 20 years of, of less average life expectancy in areas that were, were red versus areas that were green. And I was like, my goodness, you know, and it makes sense. But what we're talking about now is today. We're not, you know, so, so these areas that had been historically divested in, let's say about a hundred years ago and continued to be divested in for that period of time. Now, granted, part of what our, our series also covers was what we're all particularly probably aware, aware of now, which is the return to cities, which essentially was the opposite of when we had divested in urban cores in America, right? And everybody got out. And that was when we started to say, you know what, let's let the urban cores of our, of our you know, the, the cities in this country, we, maybe we don't need to, to spend money uh, investing in those areas until, of course, wealthier individuals wanted to move back into them decades later. So getting back to the idea is a bit of a digression, but getting back into the idea that how did our work kind of deal with people who were experiencing being housing burdened and potentially uh, housing insecurity at large, what we found was that it wasn't just what the obvious things that you might consider would be, you know, that we, in fact, were housing burdened and that uh, we also went through a period of uh, during, during the process of making the film where our landlord was extorting us for making uh, saying, I don't want to make these um, adjustments on your house. I'll just raise the rent. And at the same time, we're seeing slum landlords doing the, these types of ta illegal tactics to tenants in Long Beach, basically threatening people uh, to kick them out if they, you know, didn't want to, if they wanted to report these things. So you start to, you know, for me, and somewhat selfishly, in a way, this gets back to what I was saying earlier about documentary film, is that I am curious about people as a starting point, and then through presenting and understanding this sort of, I guess what you would say is it's just a, a friendship. I mean, uh, I don't have a film if I don't have a relationship with the people who are in it. I can't expect it to help co-tell their story if I don't uh, have that relationship established. And, and nor should I. I mean, and nor should I have any right to do it. Uh, but in every instance, it's always a learning experience, too. So, I, you know, for me, on a selfish level, I'm like, well, this is also expanding my own world because now I'm, I'm growing and I'm saying, okay, gosh, I, thought, I didn't realize the depth to this, right? So, but yes, we did film with a woman named Araceli who was a promotora in Santa Ana and just this really wonderful, sweet woman. And we essentially just followed her and her family as they were basically going through the process of getting kicked out of their house and trying to find another place to live. And it was incredibly difficult to watch, you know, because there wasn't a whole lot we could do about it. 
other than than be there and spend time with uh, with each other and you know kind of have meals together and stuff. They ultimately were rehoused, but it was just a long, difficult process, and it's just unfortunately all too common. So I'll stop there. But there's plenty of other things I can say about the series and and the experience. Thank you. I think what all of you are illuminating seems to be the importance of asking questions, the importance of going deeper into issues rather than just taking words or data for, for face value, really questioning what's out there. And, and you know, you touched on it earlier, that, that seems to be the value that artists bring to issues uh, such as this. So I'd, I'd like to ask you to think about you as artists, and here you are invited uh, by the, you know, an institute for uh, ethics and policy. Do you see any interface between you as an artist and some of these more institutional structures that exist? And whether, you know, possibly could there be more partnership between artists and these entities? I'll just say this, just to, since I was just speaking, I, like one one thought that does occur to me is that if the arts, uh, if we as artists um, and as other, I would say, you know, people at large, if we don't find ways to plug arts into these t t institutional types of conversations, if we want to keep them separate, we're in for a lot more hurt. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but I, you know, I would go back to one thing that Alvaro said earlier, which I think particularly applied to to our film, which is just that. Um, how did you put it? You said uh, we have to get out of being like purely academic. No, it wasn't what you said. You said that art needs to exceed the scholarly article, and I think that that's a really important point to make for reasons that I hope ties into your question, which is just that it was certainly a problem that we had in researching for the film, because here we are, we're talking about all of these different modalities of all of these different things. Any any one of them, any one person's story could have been a five part documentary series, but instead we're trying to smash them all together and deal with all these different places, which is great because, you know, it's a challenge. And hopefully if you do it right, then you can watch, you know, an hour of something and get a better idea of how these, what the intersectionality is, how these parts, how these stories all relate to one another. But, one thing I love, but also the danger of preparing to make a film is that you do have to get a little scholarly. So we co we co-produced the film with KCET. KCET is a mainstay you know, in Southern California, recently joined back up with public broadcasting after many years of doing their own thing. Um, but it's very rooted in the, in the research. And so we had a team of people in addition to ourselves who were just constantly coming through articles, constantly looking for case studies, uh, looking for different people to talk to. And that's what you have to do. I mean, the research is, is at least in, in, the, in this field and in, in, in a documentary that's going to cover some facts uh, about ultimately about an important issue, you have to do it. But it's very easy to get lost in it. And it's very easy for that to become kind of stale. And it's very easy for that were it to stay on the page to become the kind of thing that people say, let's just leave that for the experts, you know. When, when really these are issues that affect all of us and how they are synthesized and how they are brought back down into a, a palatable way of, of exchange uh, in terms of what that information is trying to convey is incredibly important. Uh, I just don't know how else to put it. If, if we aren't excited, and that, that feels like a weird word to use in this context, but I would say excitability in terms of frustration, uh, passion, fear, rage, those are the types of things that these any important issue should elicit within us. And art is fundamentally related into, into translating those and eliciting those types of responses in terms of where we would also otherwise maybe be in fear of letting things become too academic. And I say that obviously with, with all great love for, you know, academia, I grew up, uh, my, both of my parents were teachers. Uh, I, I love, I love being able to come at things from an academic perspective, but I also understand that what we, what we are talking about at a certain level is accessibility. And I do think that I believe that you have to catch people. And sometimes that comes, that's where the artist comes in. You know, it's like, how are you catching people? And sometimes it is, it's through a print or, or, or a meme even that highlights a crazy, you know, a, a contradiction that is either funny or sad or terrifying. And then that's where we have to start the conversation. And that's where we jump in. If you lose that, 
um, I think you really run the risk of of institutions continuing to or moving further in a direction of of uh, not reflecting the values that we should be, you know, basically upholding ultimately. I mean, I think you brought up some important points, Jeremiah. I mean, for me, I, I, I mean, I have a symbiotic relationship with academics, right? Like I rely on academics performing the labor that they do in order to be able to inform the work that I do. So my comment wasn't meant to downplay or minimize the importance of that labor. I think that there's, you know, at least in my understanding of, of political movements and political economy, you know, these broad coalitions are really important. And I think that none of us operates in a silo, right? What, what these institutions do and do well is very important. And at the same time, I think that uh, at least specifically regarding to cultural production and artistic work, uh, we just have a different set of skills that we can bring to the conversation that help to augment the work that's being done by the institutions. Um, and I think that, that uh, it goes back to what Jeremiah was saying about really thinking really broadly about how social change happens. And uh, I can't, you know, artists cannot operate in a silo. You know, we're members of the community too. I see myself as a member of my community. Uh, and the relationships that I could have with institutions who are working towards this change, I think are integral to broader social movements. I just want to follow up one thing but uh, really quickly, which is that, yeah, I didn't want to misconstrue what you were saying earlier. I just thought it was, uh, so I think your point is well taken and, and what you were mentioning there. I brought it up within this context because at least for me personally, when making a film that deals with a historical precedent, there's a certain amount of information. You do have to have a, a, a two-way channel going on uh, with how that information is being received and processed and then ultimately regurgitated and re-input back out into the world. The danger is, or not the, maybe not the danger, but the challenge is, and I think one of the things as a creator, doesn't matter what you're doing, I think you have to ask yourself before you start, okay, I want to engage with this topic. I have an idea. Is it a film? Is it a movie? I have to ask myself that anyway. And so, you know, it might not be a film. It might be an article, you know, it might be something that literally should be written and there might be reasons for that. Or, you know what, it might be, hey, you know, this idea maybe is better suited for a podcast, a serial podcast, which I know that some of you may be working on. All of those different mediums are going to give you different opportunities. And ultimately, I think some of the material that you're working on will dictate uh, what medium you end up in. So I say that because it would have been very easy for us to turn a city rising into a book. I mean, if we had gone real hard in one direction, uh, you, you just make a book. It's just there's just too much information. And we ran into that problem uh, on the first episode, which or the really the first 15 minutes ultimately of the film, which becomes about the 250 years of racist housing policy and everything. If you really want to do that justice, you have to go even further back, as Alvaro had mentioned earlier. At a certain point, what you're talking about is you're also acknowledging that what you're leaving things out. There are things that are not being included that are equally as important. And uh, so the medium and what you're trying to communicate become very important. That's all I would add. Yeah. There's starting to be some questions in the chat, and I'm seeing one that I think would be a good follow up to this conversation about uh, academia and, and art. Someone is asking about the uh, whether you see your work as ethnographic work that can connect both academia and real life. And I would ask Marika, maybe you could um, speak to that since you work very directly with people in your performances. Um, sure, yeah, and I think what, what I say also has to do with, or what I wanna say about it also has to do with, with what we just discussed. For me, being an artist or doing things at theaters or in festivals or being in academia is not enough. Uh, and I, I for me, there is really, there is really distinction between how my brain operates when I'm creating an artwork or if I'm doing my organizing work with the LA Tenants Union. And, um, uh, and I think actually that for what we're discussing today, what I'm doing with the LA Tenants Union is way more important than uh, the performance that I'm going to make about my house. Um, and, uh, you know, I think especially in the last year, there's been an increase of illegal evictions and 
what we do with the South LA local is eviction blockades, or we write letters to landlords, or um, we advocate on on behalf of tenants, help them stay longer in their in their home, and make them aware of their rights. I think someone was asking also, it's like you know, what can you do if you feel that eviction is coming? So the first thing is know your rights, and if you don't know them, like find find a group like the LA Tenants Union or there were some other organization posted that can help you make them aware of them and organize with your neighbors because the moment that you're organized, you're stronger. And for me, it's like the work that I do with the LA Tenants Union is really a realm of like action where I don't think like, what does it mean? Where's the nuance? Because it's not relevant. Like people are being kicked out of their homes and you, you know, you have no time to think about the larger context of the or the history. And and there is a tension for me because it's like, it's a very different aspect. You know, it's a very different way of operating when I dive into the archives and look at old uh, newspapers about, you know, the city a hundred years ago. I think maybe what per personally, what I can offer is that I operate in both spaces and can foster a dialogue between them. But I think in reality, they're, very far apart and they have very different needs too. And what I'm trying to be is like sort of a bridge or, you know, trying to, to make the distance a little bit smaller. Yeah. Thank you for putting, sharing the, that kind of tension. I, I think that speaks to, you know, reason, a, a reason why it's actually difficult for these worlds to come together, even if we would like them to, you're just operating in a very different space. But I, I am curious about how you said that you feel that your work at the with the tenants' rights group is more important than your art. So, in a way, downplaying the art because perhaps that work feels like it's like solving problems in a very direct way, whereas the art is there, but maybe slightly. It's not solving problems, but it's yeah. something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's. I think it's like less important when it comes to like what can I actively do for this issue. Like, I think. Uh, I think what I can actively do uh, for housing is injustice is you know more on the ground work than making a performance about it. But that doesn't. You know, I still think. I still think it is important that there is there is a debate and that uh, it is a topic that is represented in art and that we you, you know that it is part of the of the cultural discourse so i'm not saying that it's not unimportant but if you know if i'm looking back at what has the most like immediate effect or like what makes the most difference in the end I think it's really showing up for people's houses on days that they're being evicted or writing a landlord that the rent increase that they did was illegal because it may, it can make the difference of people sleeping in their bed at night or not. And that's something very concrete. And I think when I, you know, when I make performances, I'm in sort of a more nuanced and reflective space that is also necessary. But there is such urgency with the issues that we are talking about that sometimes I feel we we don't really have the luxury of <laughs> like remaining in that reflective, contemplative, nuanced, observational space. That makes a lot of sense. I think time has a lot to do with it when you talk about urgency. Art kind of operates at quite a slow pace. It's reflective and contemplative. But sometimes when there's something, something that rises to the top, you just can't ignore it. I wonder if uh, Brady, if I don't know if you're monitoring the chat. I haven't scrolled through all the questions, but do you see any since we have uh, about 15 minutes left? Yeah, so I would say what's interesting is a little bit of what's going on in the chat is some mutual aid and that people are asking questions about what to do if uh, you're under threat of being evicted, which I think speaks to what Marike is talking about, is that there's some attendees to the discussion that themselves are, are dealing with some of those immediate issues. I think, you know, a question that Jonathan posed in the chat that I, I'll kind of rephrase as, as being one about 
perhaps the 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 tension of of artists and policymakers or anyone that's trying to to help um, advocate or create change is there is there a risk that they can also do harm and and I'm wondering how that kind of relates to what the panelists were speaking about earlier about having themselves felt complicit in the in some ways in the past and so maybe that's a question to to revisit is how do you, how do you think about that that tension of of trying to be an ally or trying to be an advocate while also reflecting on your own role, your own impact. So I think that's that's what I'm seeing in the chat, but please, Rennie, oh, we see, we have someone say both gentrifiers and gentrified, right? As, as I think Alvaro had mentioned, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that question to me, I think it's context specific, right? I think that in certain instances, I think, I, I wouldn't see it necessarily as harm, but there's maybe, I mean, I want to go back to what Marika was saying, you know, in terms of the urgency of certain things. I think that on a discursive level, you know, artistic work is important, but I also push myself to actually be involved in direct efforts to mutual aid. And one of the, the beautiful things about printmaking is that you can print a bunch of stuff and try to sell it at an affordable price and raise money for mutual aid efforts. That's one of the things that I do. I work with some mutual aid organizations to really bring relief to people who need tents, right? Like that's such a ubiquitous thing that we see in Los Angeles now. And it's in my mind, I don't know if I'm doing more harm than good because in a way I am putting another bandaid on the problem, right? By giving people tents. But at the same time, I think of it as harm reduction. If I can keep somebody from having to sleep in the elements and my selling you know, $600, $700 with the prints gets people at least to have some shelter, even if it's imperfect, then I feel that that serves an immediate purpose that, that's much more urgent than the discursive implications of, say, creating this contemplative work. So, I, I mean, I think that the question is a good one, but I, I think it really depends on the context, right? And I think that, uh, as Marika was saying, there are more immediate urgent concerns that can be taken care of through direct action. And I don't think that art is always necessarily that removed. I think that there's a lot of artists who do, especially artists who work in public practice and social practice, oftentimes it's real, it's real direct interventions. Uh, right now I'm doing a project with the anti-eviction mapping project. And they work specifically to counter evictions in places like the Bay Area, Los Angeles, New York City. So I think that there is a place in the arts for direct advocacy that is not necessarily going to reproduce the harm done to people facing housing insecurity. It just takes a really concrete thinking about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and in what context you're performing that labor. I think also like adding to that, and I'm not a visual artist, but I think that especially visual arts can help with creating a sense of visibility, like in the neighborhood that I live, housing injustice is just obvious from the moment that you step on the sidewalk, but that's not true for all parts of Los Angeles. So there is, you know, I think art can help make visible the scope of some of the issues that we are talking about. Yeah, that brings to mind. I think uh, it's. Was, I think it was the artist David Hammond who did the the, the show at Hauser and Worth. I have mixed feelings about the intervention. Uh, I have actually a lot of mixed feelings because it's a blue chip gallery, but I, I see that the impulse of the artist was to make visible right the the human experience of being on the streets. I think the limitation was that it took place in a blue chip gallery and in a space where the unhoused are not welcome right? And so there's there's a lot of ethical implications in these. And I think there's no real easy answer. The same way that somebody phrased it as, you know, I'm both a gentrifier and gentrified. It takes a lot of nuance to understand that. But I think that there is a certain form of visibility. And I, I, I appreciate what Jeremiah was saying earlier about actually working with people, right? I think one of the limitations that I can acknowledge in my own work is that uh, kind of to answer this question about ethnography, my work is not ethnographic. It's thinking about structures and history, but I think that different media have different affordances and something like film, for instance, uh, documentary film in particular, has that potential to show a visibility of the stories from the people being affected in a way that I can't necessarily do as a printmaker or, or that I don't do for various reasons. Yeah, that, that actually, goes back to my, my first question about medium, that, that we actually need a multiple of media. 
it's it can't just be the academic paper or just a film or just a book. We need people to also, you know, lead people around the city as Marika does. We need visuals to draw attention to things. So I think that multiplicity is is really key. Should we address one more question in the last five minutes, or what do you think? Rachel? Yeah, we we've got I think a, a nice question to close on on perhaps a somewhat optimistic note. But Alex asks, what advice do you have for budding artists and storytellers? And, and maybe I'll just add to that, you know, what advice do you have in the context of what we're talking about, right? This tension between artists trying to be advocates and, and being members of a community as well. But I think that's a great, a great final question. I mean, to, to build on my last response, I mean, something that I tell my students, because I teach, I have varied, I've lived many lives. <laughs> I teach U.S. history. I teach art, and what I always tell my my students is to think about their relationship to structures of power, right? Like I think that is a fundamental thing as creators, as human beings. As it's not just for artists. It's really think about your relationship to structures of power and where are you on these power dynamics. And I think that sort of either compels you to do something about it, or at least face with a little bit of discomfort your relative privilege. And, and, and so then what are you going to do with that privilege? I think that to me is an advice that I would give to people working in, in, in multiple realms. At the risk of maybe saying something that goes a little bit off the rails, I th this, this quote from Tarkovsky comes to mind and he's kind of talking about the role of the artist. And so let me just try to, to mention this and then let's see where this goes. But um, this is from kind of, uh, I think it's just his, his journals that were published later in his life. But Basically, he goes, the artist is always the servant and is perpetually trying to pay for the gift that has been given to him as if by a miracle. Modern man, however, does not want to make any sacrifice, even though true affirmation of the self can only be expressed through sacrifice. All of us today are infected with an extraordinary egoism, and that is not freedom. Freedom means learning to demand only of oneself not of life, not of others, and knowing how to give, sacrifice in the name of love. It is obvious that art cannot teach anyone anything, since in 4,000 years, humanity has learned nothing at all. The aim of art is to prepare a person for death and to plow and harrow his soul, rendering it capable of turning to good. So that's kind of a metal last line, but um, what I like about it, though, is that I think that it, it, it ties back into the idea about power. I don't think you can walk into a place and say, I've got it figured out and I'm just gonna do it. And then here it is. And, um, and I think you always have to be mindful of what you're bringing into a, into a circumstance. What, you know, there's all of these, these things that, you know, we, we, we each have as different individuals in different contexts that are gonna shift. And I think what my understanding about those words and the way that I try to think about myself in a creative space, which I would double as the real world, there's always a creative opportunity in any exchange, always uh, relies on being present and not thinking you know what, what the situation is. I, I don't think you can ever, the moment you do that, you've shut yourself off to everything and there's no room for growth. So I think really the advice that I would give is lead with passion, lead with curiosity, lead with uh, kind of a humble respect for everything around you. Because honestly, like it's really about, it is it does have to do with the expectation and to remove kind of your own ideas so that you can engage with the world and with whoever's in front of you or whatever, whatever subject matter it is that you're trying to learn about or, or express something about in a way that can maximize both your own ability for personal growth, but your actual what you're what you're setting out to do, which is to hopefully to make art that has some meaning, right? And so I, I think you can't do that without being open, without trying your best to be open. You're we're obviously going to fail. We're human, but uh, but I find it's easiest to do that when you're passionate because that's the thing that's going to draw you back into it. So find those things that keep you excited and that keep you grounded and keep you going. Yeah, I think I'm going to say something that has been said, but then in different words. But um, I just want to echo what Alvaro and Jeremiah said. I think what I have learned, uh, what I didn't know or what I didn't realize when I was a younger artist 
is the the necessity if if you're if there's a question you're exploring or whatever the inquiry is that you're doing that you really have to look at that inquiry also within yourself that it cannot only just be the you know it's not the work it's also if that's a question that you're asking what what does that really mean for you and what is you know what is your position in that or like how how do you operate in whatever system or whatever question it is that that you're looking at so i think it is about daring to put yourself at stake and i think that who i am as a citizen and who i am as an artist like started to conflate more and more where they were more separate in the beginning but now i feel that i'm sort of approaching approaching both these um elements of my identity in in the same way so yeah i think it's about really asking yourself the questions that you're also asking in the work thank you so much i i think that's um th those are really great pieces of advice and uh this discussion has been extremely rich and is has left us all with a lot to think about thank you and thank you to the audience thank you to all my landscape students who are here and to alex brady Corwin and Michael for organizing this. Thanks everyone for coming. Please put your virtual hands together to thank our wonderful panelists and Dr. Tang for this really, truly amazing discussion. CCEP would like to once again thank California Humanities for their generous support of this podcast. 